I think that the person who knows Bob Durst best in the world other than Bob Durst is probably me. And Bob Durst's favorite subject in the world is Bob Durst. Welcome to Crime News Insider Podcast. This is Jorge Del Portillo, and with me as always is Lori Hoff. How are you doing, Lori? I'm well. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, Lori, have you ever seen the Jinx, that crime documentary on HBO? Oh, yes, I have. Robert Durst. Yes. He's a character, a, a, a murderous character. But yeah, it was it was a fun show to watch, and it was kind of surreal because it seemed like how could somebody possibly admit to what everything that he admitted to. Right. And the document did a great job of just going through the case. And for those who of you who haven't seen it, Robert Durst is this son of a New York real estate scion who is a suspect in three murders. He admits chopping up one of his victims, but claims it was the killing was done in self-defense and he, and it works. Best part of the documentary is at the end where the directors confront him with this damning piece of evidence. And on a hot mic, Durst goes to the bathroom, starts talking to himself, and he says, well, there it is. You're caught. What did you do? I killed them all, of course. And it's just an amazing documentary. So these two untried murders, one in 82 and this killing in in, uh, the early 2000s, they go unsolved until the LADA's office reinvestigates it successfully convicts Robert Durst just this year, just last month, uh, for the murder of Susan Berman. And with us to talk about this case, we have the prosecution team from the LADA's office, John Lewin, Habib Balian, Ethan Milius, and is Eugene Miata there as well? Yes. All and, right. and, and you have Rob Britton. And Rob Britton. Thank you so much. I mean, there's, and there's more attorneys uh, that, that couldn't make it with us. Uh, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourselves to the audience and let us know uh, who you are and uh, what you did on the prosecution team. Uh, okay. I'm John Lewin. I was one of the, the John Lewin. You're the John Lewin. There, there we go. There we go. And I, I was uh, one of the lawyers on the team. It was a team that originally uh, it started with myself and then Habib, Joined shortly after Habib Balian. I'm Habib Balian. I'm one of John's co-counsels. All right, Eugene Miata. Yes, I am. I am here. I uh, joined the team in March of 2015. I was uh, tasked with the organizing and collection of the discovery in the case, primarily. No easy feat. No, it was not. 180 plus thousand pages of discovery. Small wow. case. It was a small case. That was a thank a thankless, but very very. <laughs> necessary job, which also involved, we had a lot of help from a lot of law clerks over the years. There's about 90 of them. I think I should go through them by name right now. <laughs> tell, you, tell you a little bit about each person. And then um, we can get them on the phone and, and have them have them come in and introduce themselves as well. Um, All the PTSD you gave them over the years. Right? Yes, it does. De- definitely. We had a lot of help. And now Rob. Yeah, my name is Rob Britton. Uh, I'm a deputy district attorney in L.A. I assisted Eugene Miata for a couple of years uh, organizing the discovery. Poor Rob was um, Rob was working in our uh, gang unit at the time, and he was basically doing double duty. Even though he was assigned full time in our case, he was still doing a whole lot of work uh, for the gang unit. And eventually, because of the, the crush of just, you know, body issues with the office and needing more help. Rob stayed with us right until about prelim. And then he, 
he had to leave us. So he put in a lot of work in and didn't get to finish it out. Wow. Um, wow. But he was with us. <laughs> we have Ethan here. What, what did he do besides comic relief during the trial? <laughs> Ethan, go ahead. I handled all the professional footage that we collected from the documentarians, uh, Andrew Dreck and Mark Smerling, as well as um, uh, collecting clips for opening statement, closing statement, impeachment, and built the opening statement uh, with Lewin, and then did part of the uh, closing and collected clips and, and collaborated with both Lewin and Habib for uh, closing. And there were so, so many clips. Yeah, there there were probably for just uh, Robert Durst, we collected probably about 700 different clips. Yeah. And one of the things that was really unique about this prosecution and really Ethan made this possible is that very early on, we kind of invested as a team in going through and in essence, pulling all the audio interviews that we had with witnesses, but Ethan's solely responsible for those. What would happen is, is that we would go through all of the interviews that we wanted. We would draw, uh, we would do up what, what I call our trial plans or our examination plans. And those would end up encompassing all the statements that the individuals have said. Some witnesses had 20, you know, different statements. And then we would organize them into a, into a, an examination plan and we would pre-advance pull clips. The technical um, know-how that was involved in it, the only person on the team that has that is Ethan. And so he really, from start to finish, was working a, a lot of hours assembling all this stuff. And the rest of us were going through, you know, the different interviews that we had to pull the clips that we wanted to, uh, to get things going. That's a huge project. I mean, you had over a hundred witnesses, right? That you had to prepare for. We ended up having about a hundred, but we had several hundred that we had prepared for and had, you know, uh, witness plans for, et cetera. Many, we didn't end up deciding to call, but we invested a lot of time. Basically we work, I started working on this case in the beginning of 2013 and everybody on the team here, Habib started about maybe three or four months after I did the rest of the guys, Ethan and I were trying a case. So he was kind of working off the books at the time, starting also in 2013, Rob and Eugene joined us in 2015 at the time we filed the case. And then we had three other lawyers that were on the case as well at different times. One, we lost to the bench, our uh, that time youngest member. And the other two, we lost to a combination of having to go back to their assignments and pregnancy uh, leave for one. And the other one was a brand new lawyer that we only had for six months. So we were really working for many years, a lot of time trying to kind of stay ahead of the curve because we knew where this was going. Can you just kind of break it down for us a, a little a reader's digest version of what we're talking about in this case? Because it spans several decades or, or maybe the TikTok version in, in, in this in this day and age. So it starts with Kathy Durst disappearing in 1982. So right? Bob Durst is the um, eldest son of a real estate dynasty. He's the third generation. He's supposed to take over the firm. But Bob is a screw up. All he wants to do is get high 
and doesn't really want to work. So he uh, doesn't end up doing much. He ends up coming out to California uh, after he graduates from Lehigh. He's supposed to go to UCLA for grad school, but instead he basically smokes dope and dodges the draft. And that's when he meets Susan Berman. Susan Berman is the daughter of Davy the Jew Berman, who was Bugsy Siegel's right-hand man in the Flamingo in Las Vegas. And after Bugsy was killed in Beverly Hills, Davy took over management of the Flamingo and was kind of the big guy in Vegas. So Susan and Bob become friends. Bob ends up going back to New York eventually, where he meets what would be his uh, future wife, Kathy McCormick. She's a 19-year-old dental hygienist. Bob is almost 29. They end up leaving for Vermont to operate a food store, a health food store called All Good Things. That was the title. Mm -hmm. Eventually, they move back to New York after a couple of years. Kathy ends up going to school, becomes a nurse, decides she wants to become a doctor. They end up getting married in 1973. She starts medical school in 1978. By then, Bob is a very abusive husband, both emotionally and physically. She starts medical school. Uh, he is doing uh, really horrible things to her. She has a lot of issues. Bob has multiple affairs. He wants a divorce. They are in discussions. Eventually, in January 31st, 1982, they are staying at their lakeside cottage in Westchester, a suburb of New York. Kathy goes to a gathering with her good friend Gilberta in neighboring Connecticut about an hour away. There's arguments uh, over the phone that are witnessed between Bob and Kathy. Kathy finds out that night that Bob has settled a civil suit with a guy he's beaten up that she's planning on using as leverage for the divorce. She goes back to South Salem in Westchester where they live, never to be heard or seen from again. Uh, it's our belief and the evidence demonstrates that Bob killed her that night in Westchester at the South Salem house. Bob says he puts her on a train that night for New York City. He originally says that when she got home that night, uh, he talked to her about 11 p.m. when she was watching the news. He would later, years later, admit that he made that whole thing up. The police do a very, very sloppy job of reinvest of investigating the case, all kinds of issues, which would take me hours to go through. But in essence, the case ends up going nowhere. Meantime, Bob Durst ends up staying working at the Durst organization. Eventually, in the early to mid-90s, he is passed over of leadership the organization. He moves to California, where he buys a place in Northern California, uh, where uh, basically he smokes a lot of weed. And in 1999, the New York State Police, who would have had jurisdiction where the murder actually occurred, the killing occurred, we believe, in Westchester County. But because Durst reported her missing in New York City, where she allegedly made it back to their Manhattan penthouse, NYPD had the original investigation. So 1999, New York State Police reopened the investigation because of a tip. The tip ended up being completely... Uh, a bogus tip, but it got them looking at it. Durst ends up hearing about the reinvestigation. He panics. He's terrified he's going to be charged with murder. He takes off for Galveston, Texas, where he disguised himself as Dorothy Siner, a mute woman, moves into a $300 a month tiny studio apartment where he lives as a mute woman. His neighbor, a few months later, moves in. It's Morris Black. Um, meantime, 
in December of 2000, a couple of months after he moves to Galveston. Uh, Susan Berman is found shot in the back of her head in her home in Los Angeles, right adjacent to Beverly Hills. There are no signs for sentry. She has no defensive wounds. There is a note that is sent to the police. The police receive the note. It's postmarked on December 23rd. Her body will not be found until the 24th, and it's inside of her house. So the idea is whoever sent the note obviously has seen the body. The note has her address, 1527 Benedict Canyon Drive, and the word cadaver. The word cadaver would be significant because it's a term that's used by doctors and medical students. Bob had been with his wife, Kathy, when she had been in medical school. That's probably why he used that. The letter is not identified to Bob at all. Bob is not even a suspect originally. And then nine months later in September is when he will kill his root. He is the neighbor in Galveston, Morris Black. He after he kills him, he dismembers his body. He dumps in Galveston Bay in a bunch of bags. He does not realize that Galveston Bay is about as deep as my bathtub and the body parts float back up. Bob panics, sees the body parts coming up. The evidence is that he rips one of the bags open, takes Morris's head, puts it in a, uh, a towel, uh, which he then ends up driving to New Orleans, where he has a second apartment that he's also rented as a woman, Diane Wynn, drops off the, the towel at the dry cleaner. Bob is very cheap. Why he needed to, he wouldn't buy a new towel, why he needed to also pick up his glasses is not a a good situation uh, for him. So eventually he becomes a suspect in Susan Berman's murder. He goes on the run after Galveston. He gets arrested, gets bailed. They don't understand who he really is. They let him out in 250 grand bail. He's out six weeks until he's captured on November 30th of 2001, shoplifting a sandwich at a Wegmans in, in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. He ends up coming back for trial. He doesn't know which of the most uh, esteemed defense attorneys in Texas to hire. So he basically hires all of them. Uh, his lead attorneys were Dick DeGuerin and Mike Ramsey and, uh, and Mike Ramsey's young associate, Chip Lewis. They end up um, claiming that it was self-defense and accident. Morris had found Bob's gun, had pulled the gun on him. They'd struggled. The gun had gone off. Bob had panicked dismembered Morris, et cetera. The head was never found. He is acquitted. And then uh, years later, Jurecki and Smerling, who grew up in Westchester County, after they make a documentary called Capturing the Freedmans, they decide that they want to tell the story of Bob Durst. They first do it in the fictionalized All Good Things. Bob sees it, loves it, reaches out to them. And Andrew comes up with the idea of, well, maybe how about we do interviews with you? And Bob sits down for 20 hours worth of interviews. That's the story. That's, that's amazing. Just, and then, your typical, and, just your typical homicide case. Yeah, exactly. I, I'm assuming this trial lasted about a week. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yes. <laughs> so, so Durst is acquitted of, of the murder of Morris Black. I think he pleads guilty to, you know, dismembering the body or whatever it is. He's credit for time served. And then there's this whole, the jinx thing. Jarecki confronts him with this cadaver note. So like you said, the, the killer is the one that, that marks it, postmarks it on December 23rd, 2000, the day before Susan Berman is, is found dead and writes a letter saying cadaver at this right. Benedict Canyon. So, so what happens is that in the middle of doing the research on the case, Susan's um, 
and he's not her son, Sarab, uh, who was living with Susan at the time. He was grown by then. He was an adult. He was actually in Europe at the time she was murdered. Sarab goes back in 2011. And he goes back through Susan's materials and he goes back because he is there's an allegation, an inference that Jarecki and Smirling are suggesting that Susan is either, you know, overtly or covertly blackmailing Bob. Mm-hmm. And Sarah is aware that Bob has given Susan money previously. And so he wants to go back and find um evidence of these prior checks. His original thought was that, well, if I can show that Bob was giving Susan money before they reopened the investigation in 1999, then that shows that, no, Bob wasn't giving Susan money because of the issues with Kathy. But in doing this, he finds what we call the Sarab letter. The Sarab letter was the envelope and the letter from March 3rd of 1999, where Bob had sent Susan a check But most importantly, it had the same writing on the envelope and the same misspelling of Beverly. That is what was given to Andrew Jarecki. And that is what Andrew Jarecki on April 18, 2012, confronted Bob with. And Bob did not know that was coming. That leads to him going into the bathroom. And before the door even closes, he says, there it is, you're caught. And then later, uh, you know, a minute, two minutes later in the bathroom, he says, uh, kill them all, of course. Wow. And and then so in, in March 14th, 2015, Durst is arrested in New Orleans and has a loaded 38. Uh, he has some marijuana passport maps of Louisiana, Florida, Cuba, and a flesh tone latex mask and an additional 117 K in cash. And and he's charged with this federal firearms charge. But then March 14th, 2015. That's when he's arrested on um, these charges, but also on your case. Is that right? Well, so what happens is, is there is a, so after episode five of the jinx, which aired the Sunday before he was arrested, I think it's March 8th, if I remember. Episode five had, had all of the conversations with Sarah and the stuff about the Sarah note. Bob panics uh, because a typical Bob, he doesn't remember He's very lazy. He doesn't want to really spend intellectual capital worrying about things. Most of us, if we murder people, you know, we get motivated to kind of, I really want to tie up loose ends. So Bob's very smart, but he's very entitled and lazy. And his whole life, he's pretty much done whatever he wants. So he doesn't really spend much time on it. So the conversation with Jarecki and Smirling back in 2012, when that happens, obviously he was confronted with the note. He realized what's going on. But meantime, it's now you know, three years later, and he's not really thinking about it. So episode five really put him on notice of, Mm. you know, holy shit, um, I'm in trouble. So he ends up seeing that episode and he takes off. Mm. And so LAPD end up going to Houston where he was living and he's not there. And then they end up tracking him with the FBI to uh, New Orleans where much as he did years ago, where he made the calls from the phone booth in Garberville, which gave up uh, on December uh, 22nd of 2000, which gave up the fact that he was in California, he called to check his answering machine. Here he is 15 years later doing the identical thing from the payphone in New Orleans. They find out he's there and they arrest him. When they arrest him, they find him. He's a felon. He's got the firearm. 
and he's got a bunch of marijuana. One place that should be on your list for not having uh, taking uh, marijuana and a firearm when you're a felon, Louisiana, Louisiana. <laughs> not where you want to go. Definitely not. So, uh, so he's just arrested on that. He's not arrested on your case. No, he- no, 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 no. He's a, so there's a warrant. There is a, there's an arrest warrant mm. on our case, a Ramey warrant. So when the FBI tracks him, they arrest him on our warrant. Gotcha. When they arrest him on our warrant, that's when they find the gun and the drugs. So before he, you, you have your case, you built it up for this warrant for his arrest for the murder of Susan Berman. Did you watch the jinx ahead of time or or did you know that that was coming when, when the jinx documentary aired? Oh yeah. We were aware we had seen, we knew all about the jinx starting very early in 2014. It wasn't called the jinx, meaning we, we had the interviews Gotcha. We had the unedited footage and we knew that it was being uh, set up to be a, to be what turned out to be the jinx. And Habib and I had gone back to New York and had seen the rough cut of the episode. So we mm. knew it was coming. So one of our issues was we had a lot of stuff that we needed to do investigative wise. And the problem is some of the stuff, if we do it, he's going to find out we're looking at him. He's going to take off for Cuba and we're never going to see him again. So we were in kind of a difficult situation of we had a bunch of work we needed to do, but if we did it, he was going to find out we were looking at him. So it was a very um, delicate kind of process. And so after he's arrested, you get notified and you head out there and join the interview. Is that right? Yes. Talk about that. You know, in my experience, I, I've sat in a couple interviews before. What is your goal? Is, is that an advantage for having the, the prosecutor there asking the questions of the suspects? There you are in a room alone with a suspected murderer who seemingly can talk his way out of a lot of things. He talked his way out of this uh, conviction in, in Texas. What's going through your mind when you go out there to interview him? Well, so I've been very fortunate for the last gosh, almost 25 years, pretty much all I've done have been circumstantial cold murder cases. And as a part of what I do, half of what I do is as an investigator. And so that means in my cases, I participate in every interview with witnesses. My suspects are always out of custody. I generally speaking, do those interviews with detectives. And the reason that I do them, if you think about it, guys, we don't get to call a defendant a trial. We're not allowed to. So when I interview a a defendant, I know that if I want, and this case gets filed, this is going to end up being played in court. I know that a jury is going to hear it. I know that they're going to, this is going to be an exposure to the defendant. It's going to be exposure to me. So I'm very comfortable and very used to doing these kinds of interviews. So uh, as soon as he was arrested, I flew out. I took a red eye, landed at six in the morning, went to, uh, to the New Orleans jail, and myself and two investigators did the interview. Now, the two investigators did the interview. They were new to the case. And, you know, there's so much material here. I'd already been working on it three years. And so, you know, they, they, they weren't really in a position to know, you know, all the information about Durston's history. One of the questions that you asked them was obviously about the cadaver note and you got him to admit on the recording 
again, that, hey, whoever wrote this cadaver note was involved in Susan's killing. Did you ask that question thinking that he would later admit in court that he, in fact, wrote the, the cadaver note? Well, so what what we did was I had a pretty significant outline at the time, nothing like trial because I didn't know when it was going to happen. When you do these interviews, you want to set it up so that, number one, any areas that he has to escape, he's boxed in. You can make him commit to one thing or another. So, yeah, so we had planned. We knew that it was pretty simple. The basic premise of the case was Durst either has to admit that he wrote the note or that he didn't. If he says that he wrote the note, then that means he's going to be saying he found the body. He's going to have to testify. It opens up a whole lot of issues. I had always wanted him to admit that he wrote the note because that means he was going to have to testify. His other option would have been to say that I did not write the note to have taken the millions of dollars that he has to have hired some expert to have come in and said, no, he didn't write the note. One of the problems that his defense team had was that they did not know what he told us because Mm -hmm. they don't get discovery until Bob gets arraigned on our case in California. For a long period of time, they didn't know whether Bob had admitted he wrote the note or had denied it. So they were in a difficult position. You personally have a lot of experience then interviewing defendants or potential defendants, but would you say that on the whole, I mean, most of us prosecutors, we don't, we don't have, I mean, if somebody testifies at trial, then we can cross-examine them, but you, you sort of sat in a unique spot having had experience talking with people that you might charge with murder later on. And do you think that gave you an advantage in this case? Well, I think, yeah, I think, I think the biggest thing that gave me an advantage is that um, I think that the person who knows Bob Durst best in the world other than Bob Durst is probably me. And Bob Durst's favorite subject in the world is Bob Durst. And so I knew that if I got there, that there was a decent chance that Bob, if he realized that I knew as much about him as I did, Bob would like to talk to me because, of course, the subject is Bob Durst. So, yeah, that that definitely gave me a a real advantage. I will just tell you that historically, it is an unusual position to be in. There are many prosecutors, many judges, many people don't like it. However, because I'm taping everything and they try to make these cases every time I do one, they try Mm -hmm. to make the case about me and etc. And they've been doing that for 20 years and, and it, it never works. But I mean, he's read his rights beforehand. He knows that he, he could have a lawyer before questioning all that stuff before you started asking him questions. Right. And, and everything is taped. Yeah. So absolutely. So I'm not a witness uh, because the detectives were there. So yeah, it gave me a big advantage. And, and it also, Bob is a very interesting individual because he will admit to many things that the rest of us would deny. Mm -hmm. So if any one of us were abusing our wife, like let's say we had pulled her out of, you know, a party by the hair, we would deny it until the end of time. I mean, that's just what people do. People deny bad things. Bob, on the other hand, I wouldn't do that to start with. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we would deny it till the end of time, but Bob just admits it. And so 
it's very interesting because very few people are like that. But what it allows him to do is Bob comes off as very just honest about the bad things that he's done. And he's honest about 90% of it, but it lets him lie about that last 10. One of the problems is Bob seems to honestly believe that the way that he treated Kathy was not uh, a domestic violence or abuse. Every time I would bring it up in court, he would go nuts, Mm. which was shocking. Well, taking you back to the beginning then, like 2013, when you first start working on this huge, huge case, how did that investigation just start and how did you guys roll through it and, and keep it on track? So Habib and I are in a unit that we call our major crimes division. And I've been in that unit since 2004. So in 2006, the original detectives came to me on the case. Um, And at the time I was ordered by my chain of command. They'd already looked at it. There were a lot of problems. And I was uh, told this is not one we want you looking at. So you looked at it. No, no, no. It's funny. It's it's, it's one of the, it's one of the few times where I actually listened to uh to my boss at the time. And I, and I didn't look at it. I knew about it and there were a lot of problems. And so what really kind of set this case up was obviously unbeknownst to us, Jurecki and Smirling had started doing their interviews. They made all good things. They started working on the case in 2004 or 2005. Then they ended up making the movie, All Good Things. As a part of making that movie, they were, in essence, going around the country and interviewing all kinds of people. They ended up getting the what we call the Serum Note. They interviewed Durst in 2010 and then again in 2012, but we didn't know anything about it. So what happens is in late 2012, early 2013, the original LAPD detectives had retired. And so the case had been passed on to a detective named George Shamlian, who was the lead detective on the case in what we'll all call the reinvestigation. So what happened is that in late 2012, George Shamlian was contacted by the FBI. And what happened was, is that in April of 2012, when they did the second interview with uh, Durst, so there were three interviews done on three consecutive days in 2010 in December, uh, December uh, 11th, 12th, and 13th, And at the beginning of December 11th, there was a separate interview that was the DVD commentary that were all done with Durst by Jarecki and Smerlin. There was the DVD commentary to the movie, All Good Things. Correct. Which which was a movie pretty much that depicts uh, some of the allegations against Durst for the killing of his wife, Kathy Durst and Susan Berman. Well, so what it's, it's basically the Bob Durst fictionalized life story based on, on him marketed as being the story of Bob Durst. It basically is a story of a guy who kills his wife. He kills his best friend, uh, the Susan Berman character, who was a witness to his wife's murder. And then he kills the Morris Black character in, in Galveston, who in the movie was a hitman who killed Susan Berman. Mm. That didn't happen. That was just an addition. He's also in the movie um, accused of killing several dogs And there's even an inference that maybe he killed his father. So Bob Durst's response to seeing this movie, which depicts him as a serial killer who kills dogs, 
is to go, I love the movie and to call Jarecki and Smirling and uh, to tell them that. I really loved kind of sidestepping, but this trial is was so perfectly put in L.A. because it, it had so much Hollywood in it. You know, you got to play um, all good things because the defendant on trial was was making commentary. He was talking throughout his own, you know, watching the movie. You, you played clips. You did so many things that I think are really kind of remind you of Hollywood. And even some of your witnesses were Hollywood producers, et cetera. You know, did that did you think about that while you were preparing for your trial? I mean, certainly that was an aspect of our case. And and we knew going into it that the defense was going to try to make it seem like this was a big Hollywood production, which comes with all of the special effects and editing and and whatnot that's involved in Hollywood production. So from the very beginning of this case, before we even got close to a courtroom, we were strategizing on how we were going to deal with that. How are we going to approach it? What investigation were we going to do to kind of take away some of those avenues of arguments? And so we were kind of preparing to deal with that from the very beginning. That's one of the reasons we had gotten uh, some experts on board fairly early to look at all the raw footage and analyze it and, and to be able to tell us this. None of this was edited. None of this was artificial from just a, a scientific or technical point of view. Uh, fortunately, based on a lot of that work, we were able to get some stipulations that it was unedited and we didn't have to go down that road. And and in terms of how we how we got on it, so in late 2012, as a result of the last interview with Durst, where the, the filmmakers filmed him going near the Durst organization, Bob's brother Douglas became very concerned because Bob is a big threat to him. He ended up through his head of security contacting the FBI regarding a threat investigation, a stalking investigation. And that agent, Eric Perry, ended up looking at the case and became very interested. He ended up contacting George Shamley. And the original idea was they were going to exhume Susan Berman's body. And because I uh, have expertise in uh, circumstantial cold cases, George called me up originally uh, to ask me about that. And obviously, because she was shot from behind, there was no evidence for struggle. That is not something that would have been advisable to do. You're only going to get artifacts of of unrelated DNA. So um, I was contacted that way. At the same time, Andrew Jarecki was reaching out to people he knew because he believed that the Los Angeles case was still a viable case. And he ended up talking to somebody who, um, Marsha Clark, who was a DA, ex-DA in the office, who uh, is close to an investigator I'm close to. And so Marsha ended up dropping my name to uh, Jarecki, and then Jarecki ended up kind of uh, approaching us as well. So we got involved kind of on two different sides, from the FBI and from Jarecki. Wow. And, and Jarecki is the the filmmaker for both All Good Things and The Jinx. Is that right? Yes, uh, okay. correct. Along with his partner, Mark Smurling. Okay. Yeah. Talk about a stereotypical LA case, whatever, all good things. The jinx, there was mention of reservoir dogs, Friday the 13th, star Wars, Jaws, and the usual suspects. Well, it's, <laughs> well, it's, not- well, it's true. Well you, well, you know, um, so Ethan, first of all, Ethan's dad is John Milius. Yes. I, I looked that up and I saw that who's a screenwriter. Yeah. A very, very, very successful, clearly the pride of the Milius family. This generation just really hasn't held up. I'm surprised he kept the last name. <laughs> yeah, it's. I mean, it's. It, we're hoping the next generation is going. There's going to be a little bit of a rebound. 
but so Ethan is a, is a big film fan. Yeah. He, he brought up reservoir dogs, uh, the usual suspects. We can't give anybody credit except for Bob. And what's interesting is when that happened, I was very busy cross-examining Bob and did not notice it. Tim Henderson, who is the DA who's not uh, on with us right now because he just won a poker tournament. (laughs) Tim actually picked up on, was the first one to pick up on. Am I right on that? Am I mixing up? Yeah. Yeah. Tim, Tim picked up on the fact that, wait a minute. He just said Danny Cunningham and we had given in the morning, we were impeaching uh, Bob with, does the issue doesn't matter, but in essence, we showed him a handwriting report by Lloyd Cunningham, who was our handwriting expert. And shortly after that, you know, I'm hitting him on the name. Yeah, Daniel, Danny Cunningham. <laughs> yeah, you're, asking, was- you're asking him about this uh, marijuana dealer that he was in California, right? And he didn't want to give up the name, so he threw out a name, Daniel Cunningham. Yes. And, and, you know, it could have been Danny Microphone, Danny Bailiff. Right. Um, and and uh, I didn't catch it when it happened. Um, Tim caught it and then alerted me to it. And, and we ended up, I mean, it was shocking. I mean, that's the usual suspects. Yeah. You, cannot, you can't make that shit up. He's picking uh, coffee beans in Guatemala too. He was probably. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, it was crazy. Uh, m- my favorite though was still was when, uh, when Bob is talking about, he lives off the grid. Um, the, uh, the drug dealer. And we're like, mm-hmm. wait, what kind of, he, he has a farm and, you know, we're asking him what kind of farm, a hundred acre farm, he grows organic vegetables and, <laughs> and so wait, no electricity. Like, wait, Bob, what kind of farm? What do you mean? No electricity? Well, the Amish do it. Um, <laughs> I mean, again, you cannot make this stuff. It was very hard not to laugh. And sometimes, you know, I was laughing. All of us were laughing. You've been listening to part one of our interview with the Robert Durst prosecution team. Make sure to catch part two next week where we dive into preparing for trial, what surprised them during Robert Durst's testimony, and they reveal what they believe ended up being the most crucial piece of evidence in the case. All this and more next week on the Crime News Insider Podcast. expressed on this podcast are solely of the speakers and do not reflect the views of the Deputy DA's Association nor the District Attorney. Questions and comments can be submitted through our website at sddaa.net. Remember to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at San Diego DDAs. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.